For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you the Brickflips with the Fryfest preview Preview podcast from Britflix. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me writer director Henrik Fowler. Hello, Henrik. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. Now we've uh, we've come on we've come together on these on this Skype line over the super internet highway to talk about your movie Mountain Fever. Yeah, that's correct. Do you want to give the audience listening to this a um, a brief synopsis as to what Mountain Fever is about? Absolutely. Um, so Mountain Fever is a survivalist thriller. So it's set during a flu pandemic uh, that has spread through Europe. We don't really know what's going on, but we know a lot of people have died. The power grid is down and uh, Europe is just descended into chaos. Um, and in the midst of all this, we've got this city boy called Jack who is trekking into the French Alps, hoping to take refuge from this virus. But he's a city boy, so he really doesn't know how to handle an alpine winter. He can't even chop wood. He doesn't know how to live without electricity. You know, he's, he's a modern guy from the city. So he's really out of his depth, and he's struggling to survive. And we add to the mix uh, Kara. She's this taciturn, gas-mask-wearing female renegade who breaks to his house and essentially steals all his food, all his resources, and barricades them into the house. So now Jack is is cap, uh, captive in his own house, and um, these two people don't get along very well. And the situation becomes really bad when local survivors break into the house, and these two people that hate each other, Jack and Kara, have to hide uh, in the second floor. And this, this siege ensues uh, where everyone just gets hungrier and uh, colder, and eventually start killing each other. So it's really about a man who's completely out of his depth, who has to choose a side um, to survive this flu pandemic. So it sounds like also you've got a little bit of like um, sort of buddy-buddy in there as well, haven't you? Two people that don't get on having to team up together to, to, to get through it. Yeah, it's like the survivalist thriller equivalent of a buddy cop movie. They start by hating each other, and uh, then they have to work together, essentially. 
So, given you, given you the writer director of this, where where did the um, where did the first kernel of an idea for this this idea come from in in your mind? Well, I've I've always loved um, films that are kind of in a survivalist type, and also you know where the world has kind of fallen apart. I'm a big fan of, of of films where there's no electricity, no cell phones, none of the things we're used to, and seeing you know. How do how does an average human being deal in that situation? So I always knew I wanted to do this kind of post-apocalyptic theme, and uh, and we also had a house in the French Alps to our disposition. So I knew I'm going to tie these two things together. I know it's a very desolate place up there. There's there's, there's only very small villages, and in the middle of the winter, it would be a great place to shoot a film like that. So you 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 aim to shoot in the winter as well. You, you thought. Let's go. Let's go for the uh, for the snow challenge. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I really like when I make a film. I try as much as possible to to make sure that the set kind of feels adequate. That you know, if people are supposed to be tired, that they are tired. If it's supposed to be a terrible situation, <laughs> you know that yeah, that yeah, it's yeah. not easy for the actors. So I try to get them in the mood like that. So I knew you know an alpine winter in the French Alps. You don't have to act like you're cold if you're walking through the snow. <laughs> true, true, true. If you say, yeah, if you, if you reduce their uh, ability to stay warm, then they're going to get cold, aren't they? So acting cold. So this was all shot on location then? No, 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 no sound stages or anything? No sound stages whatsoever. Um, so mo- like, let's say 70% of the film is set in this massive house in the French Alps where this siege ensues, and then the rest of the film happens outside in the wild in this snowy landscape. Yeah. So was was the was the sort of journey to the story for you, um, sort of started with we've got access to an a, an alpine house, and I want to make a movie where mobile phones aren't working and the normal rules of life have been eroded. Is that kind of what you, you gave yourself those broad brushstrokes and worked worked out from there? Is it? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I. I... As a filmmaker, I like to give myself limitations so I don't spend, you know, years chasing 15 different ideas that I start, you know. Yeah. I have a limitation to work off of, and that makes it easier to to write. And it was it was just a very pragmatic approach to making a very cheap film. You know, like, I think a lot of first-time filmmakers who don't have the support of a studio or don't have a massive budget, you see they do similar things. They look around, and they think, what do I have? Who do I have? And then they make a film built around that, really. No, no, no! I followed a similar path. I've, I've, I've got access to a mountain farm in Norway, and uh, although I wouldn't want to do it in the winter, um, <laughs> but yes, no, I, I can, I can totally understand the idea of writing for a location. It's, uh, it's sort of liberating at first, and then I don't know what your experience was, but then there's kind of, how did you keep your imagination going when you knew what? you knew what was already there, as it were. So there's always a, there's a... I mean, my experience was I had a tendency to, to sort of write right down to the Buddy Cutlery draw, you know, that I knew yeah. was there. You know, because you know, if you know the location well, you can kind of hem yourself in. So how did you keep it alive in your mind, you know, in terms of and being inventive and imaginative, even though you'd set yourself the constraint of that, that alpine house? Um, I, th- I think it helped, actually, because like you're saying, you write down, straight down to the Cutlery draw. I know this house inside out and i knew there would be a lot of you know sneaking around in this house and people trying to evade each other and because i know the house inside out there's a lot of like you know if you jump out of the left window on the third floor you're going to hit the balcony below and you're not going to die and you can get into the second floor so there's a lot of this 
Ah, okay, okay. There's a lot of this cat and mouse game going on, and because I like, if if I had written this film without knowing the house, it would have been really hard to to come up with these things. And um, because the main character is completely out of his depth, that's what you have to understand. So he's surrounded by people who are stronger than him, smarter, uh, more violent, more willing to kill each other. Let's say he's just, okay. you know, he's a he's a nice Englishman who who doesn't really want to hurt anyone and doesn't know how to chop wood. Mm. So he. The only strength he can find is, is, is the creativity of using this house that he knows better than anyone else who's attacking him. Okay. So, so he'll never win a fist fight, but he'll know how to escape faster than anyone else or how to sneak up behind someone else. So that was really you know, what the character uses to, to fight back because his that's other nice. skills yeah, are... So that's like kind yeah. of a nice... It's, like, it's, a, it's a really nice way of doing sort of brains versus brawn, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I wanted I wanted the main character to be creative in his in his <laughs> attempts to survive, and he definitely does that. Yeah. Now, just to give just to help with the context of it, your 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 character is out of his depth. Is he is he going to this Alpine house to escape from the virus, or does the virus break out while he's at the Alpine house? Well, he he doesn't entirely know. Europe is kind of descending into chaos, and there's. It's still in the stage of some people are complete skeptics and think everyone's going to die, and other people think it's going to go away, like the bird flu issues and, and so on and so forth. Um, so he's hopeful, but he's taking precautions. Um, and then he finds himself stuck in the middle of winter. So his precautions kind of bite him in the ass because got you, got you. he's completely lost up there, and it only gets worse from there on in. So where where did your where did your idea for for the um, the sort of developing dystopia that's that's going on around in where, where were you where were you taking your influences there? Um, well, I was always interested a bit in like you know when when the bird flu happened and the H one N one strain and all that stuff where I'm sitting at home and like oh that's never going to reach me and you know I think there was a phase where every year there was something new there was like the the swine flu. I was thinking, and then I looked. I looked into has this ever, you know, what's what's the worst situation we've had? And there was the Spanish influenza, which hit a lot of countries, not just Spain, also America, in, in towards the end of the First World War, and is reported to have killed something like five percent of the human population. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, I was, I was I remember. I, I remember reading about it. The uh, yeah. sort of early twentieth century. Yeah. Yeah, it's com it's completely insane, and it was a flu virus. But the way people died, it it might as well have been a zombie film. Like their skin would go black, they would cough blood and mucus, and and some people would die within like twelve hours of getting infected because as this virus spreads, it gets it kills faster. It actually got so strong that it it killed too fast, and that's how it ended up not spreading throughout the entire planet. So essentially, um, you had real life to draw on. You didn't have to make this up, did you? Really, I suppose. No, I, I imagine what happens if in the year 2017 something like the Spanish flu actually gets out of control. And, you know, back in World War One, we weren't flying each other across the planet all the time. Now, you know, everyone is everywhere in no time. So I, I figured it would actually, if we don't manage to control it, it would be worse. Yeah, um, I mean, that's so, that kind of at the heart of um, Soderbergh's Contagion, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I really, I really like that movie. Um, actually used a lot of the, the music influences from that movie to kind of develop a temp composition for, for this film. So I looked at a lot of those. I looked at The Road as well. I love that movie. Hmm. I, th I think that's a beautiful mix of... Because Contagion kind of looks like what would happen, you know, socially. But I think Road 
is almost it's almost a horror film at, in some points now. It very and much is. I read the book with actually this year. I, I never got around to reading it until this year, and it's the book. Is, is it equal, good? Yeah, yeah, it's equally harrowing because yeah, it's it's the. I guess we can't imagine the hopelessness of no hope. I mean, there are people on this planet right now who don't have hope, and we we blithely carry on with our lives. You know the way the way the way um, the way somebody the way the news describes life for your average North Korean doesn't sound yeah. like one that you and I could survive in, does it? No, so, it's 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 wild. I mean, I, I edit a lot of documentaries as well, and around about the time I was working on the film, I was shooting a documentary in Greece in a refugee camp. Right. And, you know, this is in the middle of the summer. You know, you've got an official camp that can take maybe 500 people, and there's like three, 4,000 people living in squalor. Refugees have come from terrible situations. And there were some really crazy things going on, like black markets popping up left and right, people backstabbing each other or supporting each other. It was a, you know, it was a very complex social situation. And I think that's the closest thing I've ever come to, to seeing what would, you know, what does life look like when it completely becomes just an act of survival, really? Um, no, I've been funny enough, I'm reading books about uh, Holocaust survivors of late um, yeah. for some research. And, and, and that, that they, they took, the people writing the books talk about the fact that what happened in the camps, nobody has a bad mark against them for what they did in the camp because while we go, yes, uniformly, you're, you're someone who's been held prisoner by the Nazis, for being a Jew, for being disabled, for being gay, whatever it might be. But your the limitations on how you could live your life and what you're expected to do for how little you were given to eat and drink means that you might well have sneaked away a piece of bread and not shared it with anybody. You might well have, you know, this, that, and the other. And and it's interesting. I'd never thought of it the way before. And like your your observation of your of your camp of your refugee camps where out of what seems like desperation, people will start making money off each other in a kind of black market way and things. Absolutely. Know? Yeah, I mean, there, there was an instance at the camp where, so there, at some point there were 10,000 people there. Officially, they could only take in maybe 500, and it was raining and all this stuff. And there was this group that came and started selling tents illegally, black market, you know, hmm. in the back. Now, tents that cost maybe 15 quid at little down the road somewhere, they were selling it for 60 60 pounds. So they were making a killing. But if they hadn't done that, no one would have a tent. You see? So they were, because they were the only ones who could address the number of supply that, that was required because they were running on a profit business and the UN was running on a humanitarian scheme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, capitalism is uh, ruthlessly efficient sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's fair or it's right, but Jesus. Um... So, so no. with that, so with that in mind, while your, while your, this, these kind of thoughts are fueling you. Obviously, this is happening sort of outside of your movie kind of scape, isn't it? You're, we, 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 we're left. I guess we're left to imagine this kind of world falling apart, yeah. we, rather than we see a lot of it. Absolutely. So that that's kind. Of, I think that's that's kind of an interesting part of the film. Where like most, it all happens in this small French mountain village, right? Mm. So, what we know about the outside world is mostly what we see through the people in the film. So all, all we know is that the, this French mountain village is, is empty. We see, like, you know, an unsaddled horse walking through it, but not a single human. Um, and then we just see the the way the characters act. Mm. And from that, we start making decisions about, you know, is the optimistic guy right or is the pessimistic girl right? Or, you know, who's making the right decisions? Is this a life or death situation? 
should they be acting this way? And I think that's kind of the crux of the film. What what are um, you, you said you liked survivalist films and themes? What what were your survivalist um, touchstones for this movie? Uh, it might sound like an odd choice, but I think one of my favorite films of all times is Apocalypse Now. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you can call. I, I feel like it's a survivalist film. It's it's you know it's about a man who goes on a really dire, long journey, um, and barely gets to the end of it. So I think if anything, that one. And the road again. I really like how in the road every bullet matters, every arrow matters. You know, you can. I, I hate movies where where you don't have to worry about how many bullets you got, or where if you shoot someone in the leg with an arrow, they're not gonna die because it's just their leg. You know, I like I like movies where they actually look at the reality of like someone can bleed to death from a leg wound. Someone, you know, can have only two bullets in their gun and have to think about how they're gonna use them. I I think that's I tried to bring that reality into my film. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, I watched I watched um, Deliverance recently. Rewatched after not long, and that's got, uh, yeah. that's got lots of um, survival stuff. The fact that they put themselves in their position is is neither in nor there, and it's not about the world falling apart, is it? It's about them them not them underestimating the world they're going into, which is you know, yeah, just as crazy no, as, as your as your as the way you describe your main character. Exactly. Well, I love Deliverance as well, and I think I took a lot from that movie as well because. What happens in Deliverance is you've got um, ah, who's the main who's the main guy who Bert, survives at the end? Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds and who's the other guy? John Voight. Yeah, John Voight. Yeah. Yeah. So John Voight is kind of like the strong macho character. He's the guy most likely to be able to fend off the you know these these hillbillies that are trying to kill everyone or whatever. No, flip it the way around. It's at the start of the movie. It's Burt Reynolds is the kind of alpha male. John Voight. I, John Voight is the one who won't say boo to a goose, and then by the end of the movie, yeah, he's kind of been reduced to the same primal. So, so there we go. I really, I really like that um, that dynamic. And in, in our film, it's kind of the, it's kind of similar. The the female character is the alpha male, hmm. but she's injured throughout the film, so the weaker character has to do the fighting actually. And I, I, I like that relation. I, I like that in Deliverance, how this character who's not capable of killing someone with a bow and arrow has to learn how to do these things because otherwise they're all going to die. Yeah, because we, we're pretty, we, we as human beings are pretty, certainly in, in, in first world Western terms, we're pretty costly, aren't we, from death? We, we don't have to face up to it at all, do we? We go to Sainsbury's and we buy a chicken fillet or we buy a burger that's already made. We've never seen a cow or a chicken, have we? So, no, de- no, so I mean, death, death doesn't death doesn't feel like part of our day, even though we consume it. No, we don't. And you know, most of us wouldn't eat the chicken if we had to kill it ourselves. Most of us don't know what to do when to get into a fight. We just collapse or something. We just don't. You know, we're not. Most of us in this society aren't survivalists anymore. We're you know. No, the rule, the rule of the rule of law has made us like work in sort of try and work towards consensus and compliance, isn't it? It's like. If you step outside the law, then the law will will come down on you, and you're in trouble. If you yeah. if you observe the rule of law, like I don't hit you in the face when I walk in a shop, then everybody then things work fine, don't they? I don't steal stuff. I don't smash your car. These are all things where we're, we're complying with the law. Nobody's forcing us, are they? Yeah, we've all decided. Well, I think we become more cerebral. I think we become more. You know, we we do more with our. With our brains, and again, the main character in my film—he's this—you know—we kind of find out that he's actually an IT guy in real life, but 
that world doesn't exist anymore. Computers are of no use anymore, and now he's suddenly forced to use his hands to chop wood rather than his brain to fix a computer. So that's kind of one of the main developments in the movie. Have you come across Maslow's hierarchy of need? Is that is that a theory that you've come across in your in your research um, and writing? No, no. This is this good. is a, it's like a triangle, and at the bottom of the triangle, where the, where the broader base is, you've got like security, food, warmth, shelter. And then as you yeah. go up to the point, you get the point being sort of self-actualization. So once the, the base is looked after, then we start expressing ourselves and we want to create, <laughs> create movies. We want to write silly apps for your phone and all those kind of things that make us, that make us these people that are complacent and, and happy to live a very sort of as far removed from life and death as you can possibly get. You know, whereas I'm, yeah. I'm guessing if you live in Syria right now, yeah. The last thing you're thinking of is how to make a movie or, no. or let's form a thrash metal band. You're not thinking that one bit. You're not thinking that for one second. You're thinking, I hope bombs don't hit my town. Yeah, which, which how do I, I get through the next day? Yeah, you and I don't go to bed with that thought. And it is, and, and, and I guess that, uh, it must have been fun, right? You know, especially like you told now, your character is like, yeah, works in the city, you know, on computers, a pretty sort of normal modern existence. And then you just whip that carpet from under people and go, right. You're now useless. <laughs> um, can you live on your wits? I mean, I've joked, my, my dad's a builder and he's very practical. And I used to, I joked about him not being able to do a spreadsheet. And he said, yeah, but I could, I could plumb a house and I could do this. And, and if the world yeah. ended tomorrow, and he, did, he just used that expression on me. If the world ended tomorrow, I'd be more used than your spreadsheets. I'm going, yeah, yeah. that's a fair point, Dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If the world ended tomorrow, I think we, yeah, society would probably flip on its head. All the people at the top would would be useless. Pretty what, much. what in this in the script writing stage? What what were what was some of the um, what was some of the tough storytelling challenges for you that because you, you, you see from what what you're telling me, you've got you've got these two main characters which are playing the kind of buddy buddy thing, and then you've got yeah. the invaders who are I guess the antagonists in your story. Um, yeah. So getting that balance right of obviously sort of developing character and also keeping the action alive and and the horror real. What 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 were some of the storytelling challenges for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean that was definitely tricky. I think I think the biggest story challenge that I had and that I wanted to really stick to is I wanted this to feel like the perspective of Jack the city boy. So okay. I didn't want to cut outside of the room to go hang out with the invaders or something. I didn't, I didn't want the audience to know anything that he doesn't know. So there's no, there's no meanwhile. There's no meanwhile. There's no, <laughs> none of that. And, and also on top of all that, like, I, another tricky thing was that this, this, the female character, Kara, who's like really the kind of the plot twist of the whole film. Yeah. She never explains herself. She's, She's in my mind. She's like a female Clint Eastwood. She's like the stranger with no name. She does not explain why she does the things she does. It doesn't mean that you won't understand them eventually, but she certainly doesn't. There's no moment where she turns around to him and says, "We've got to do this because this and that," and I don't like that guy because of that. You know. So it's it's this main character in complete frustration because no one seems to be working with him. No one seems to be on his side. And at the same time, he has to work with these people or kill some of these people or, you know, all the things he doesn't want to do. So that was, that was really, that was, that was tough. And I, I tried to, I don't know, I tried to get, have no easy way out. So I'm a big fan of Breaking Bad. And I think Breaking Bad was amazing because they never, they, they love writing themselves into a corner 
and then looking for an original way out instead of, you know, some crappy Hollywood, you know, the keys are on the dashboard kind of shit. You know? No, no, funny enough, um, last year, James Moran, a screenwriter who did um, things like Severance and Copies vs. Zombies and stuff, <laughs> yeah. he, he, um, he, he did a session about writing horror films. And it was, it was really interesting because he, he takes it upon himself, he says, as part of his writing to go, let's do the obvious thing and show that it fails. So, you know, yeah. like, if you're in a bad situation, it's like, just get your car and fuck off. So yeah. then you have to go, okay, your tyres are flat or the engine's pushed or you've got, you know. And then it's like, okay, what, your next thing, obviously, thing you do is you do everything except go back into the place that you're trapped in until you can only go back. And it's like that idea, isn't it, of erode all the conveniences, but you've got to show them, haven't you? You've got to show the conveniences being eroded so you know that shit has gone down and shit can't be escaped. Yeah, I, I think I love those films. I, I watch... Am I allowed to give a spoiler? You, of Plan, what? You pl- watch... What, of your own War, film? No, War of the Planet of the Apes. I watched War of the Planet of the Apes. Yesterday. I think we're safe on this podcast to be spoiling War of the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> okay, well, towards the end, there's a big climax, and humans are fighting humans and apes, and I don't know what. And the whole thing gets solved because Caesar the main ape blows up a petrol tank at the army base, yeah. which I've seen like a billion times by now. And I'm just like, is that really, is that really what they're paid for, these guys? They're making all this money for these, this wonderful source material, and... They're going to resolve the end of a trilogy by blowing up a petrol tank. That's, I'm just, that's just so boring. I've seen it. I've seen it too many times. And I was trying to avoid falling in any of those, those holes with my script. So hopefully there's some bizarre, bizarre things that happen. <laughs> but, I mean, that, but then that's what you're, what you're talking about there is, is the ability to stay, stay true to your character and not be mm. a slave to your plot, isn't it? It's like yeah. your character can't suddenly be... Rambo, your character can't suddenly be Usain Bolt. Or, yeah. else, or else he's not your character anymore, is it? Yeah, and that, that, that was a fun thing because our character is, is quite useless. He, you know, he will never win the fist fight. He never wins, you know. So when he does get in a fist fight and you expect him to suddenly win because, you know, we're close to the end of Act 2 or something or middle of Act 3, he doesn't win it, you know, and we kind of, yeah, so we try to subvert what people expected because uh, it's kind of a, a movie for people who watch a lot of movies and know kind of what's supposed to happen, and then we go the other way, essentially. Subverting expectations is always a good thing, never to be, uh, <laughs> never to be shied away from. But like you say, it's, a, it's, it's when you see Breaking Bad do it, and obviously they've got a massive writer's room, and they're writing themselves into a corner and go, right, how do we get out of this? But on, yeah. but on your own, that's a, that's a bigger challenge. So, so from shooting in the Alps might well have been convenient because it was your location, so you controlled that to a certain degree. Yeah. But I'm guessing you didn't really control the weather. No. So what challenges did shooting in the snow present you? Well, the challenge was there was no fucking snow. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I planned the shoot for starting on the 14th of February, which historically from the 14th of February for three weeks is the coldest time in that region of the Alps. I looked at the records and everything. And we had 14 degrees sunshine you know the actress was doing yoga on on the fucking roof in you know in summer gear it was just it was ridiculous it was it was very hard we the way we solved it is we just drove up the mountain every time it started raining we drove up the mountain you know three thousand feet up kept going up till the rain turned into snow and that's when we shot anything that was in the snow but that only happened like one or two days so we actually had to go back once the next winter 
to shoot some of the snow scenes. And even then, we only got half a day of snow. <laughs> really? Um, but the beautiful thing about that region is the moment it snows, it completely it transforms. It's not, you know, it's not a little bit of slushy snow like here in London. It kind of, it looks like it's been snowing for years. So we, so we really had had to work super fast. That was the only time we never did more than one take. You know, if he, if you see him in the snow, what you what you see is what we got, and okay, there's not okay. much heads or tails to it. Yeah. So outside of the weather, then, in terms of what you were trying to achieve with. Um... With with some of the action you, you've got in the movie, and and obviously working within a contained budget as well as contained location, money money yeah. money doesn't become infinite. So what what were some of the um, what were some of the sort of cinematic things you've achieved through ingenuity, as it were, as opposed to the fact that you could just spend money? What what what? Give us give us an example of something you're proud of that you've that you've managed to sort of the rabbit you pulled out the hat, as it were. Yeah. Well, I think one thing I'm, I am proud of is is kind of the outside world that you see in the film. You know, like I said, we didn't have much snow, mm. but when we got it, I think it looks epic. I think I think also we did a lot of like you know wake up at four o'clock in the morning and go shoot, and you know because it's a really tall kind of cliff face mountain, you get this ridiculous fog rolling through the trees. I don't know if you saw that in the trailer. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was proud of those moments because I was like, I don't care how much money you have, just you can't buy this with money. The only thing you can buy this with is with effort. You show up at some ridiculous hour, you're freezing your ass off, or you're too hot, or whatever it is, and you get that moment. And I think we we're, I was really proud of that. Um, but most of all, we got a horse for free, which was amazing. Cool. Um, tell me, tell me that well, story. So, so you know, we wanted to show that the village was deserted, right? But yeah. obviously, we don't have the budget to go destroy the village or, or you know, any of the things you'd like to do. Right. But we were lucky that it, it, it looked old, and we convinced the village to let us shoot there. And, and I was going to have a horse, uh, a dog, walk through the streets dragging his leash behind him. That was going to be my way of showing, okay, no one's left, and this poor little dog is walking around. Sure. And, and someone from the village is like, oh, I've got a horse. Why don't you use a horse? <laughs> So now the way that we show that this village is completely deserted is that they let us lock off all the streets, yeah. make them completely empty, open a few random shutters so you get this sense of, like, it's been left in a haste. And there's just this massive black horse walking through the streets. And in London, that would cost you an arm and a leg. And if you did it the way you're supposed to with a budget and a veterinarian and I don't know what and a wrangler. And a, yeah, a wrangler and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have cost a lot of money. And in the end, it was just... The, because we, we sh all the supporting roles are from the local theater society there. Right. And they helped us with everything. We had a local screening. We had, we had two rap parties. We had a horse walk down the street. We had people making us dinner at night. I mean, it was insane. People lending us cabins. We were, I mean, you know, we were also screaming in the house till 4 o'clock in the morning, you know, screaming bloody murder because that's what happens in the, in the movie. And the whole neighborhood just let us do our thing for three weeks instead of asking us not to wake them up at four o'clock in the morning. And, you know, these are people who have to wake up at six to go, you know, work in the country or, or bake bread or, or any of these things they do. So they really supported us. And I think that's what I'm proud of, that we, we got that support from them. How, how did you, I mean, out of interest then, how did you gather that? Was that support something you knew you were going to arrive to? Or was that something that developed because of their, their fascination with you making a movie in their village? 
Yeah, so no, I, I, did, I, did, I did not know I was going to get that. So you asked me earlier, you know, that it, it, it can be tricky writing a film when you know too much, when yeah, you know yeah. about the location and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and in some way, I think th that does get in the way, but the beautiful thing here is that we got so much happened that we didn't expect. So essentially, to hire the main bad guy, who's French, right? The main actor is, is British, and it's about a British man taking refuge in the French Alps, but all the... All the other characters are French, right? right? So I wanted to cast locally, and I went to this, this small theater society, and it had a lot of wonderful people. And then suddenly, they even had an like this girl wrote me an email. She's like, "Can I be an intern on your film?" And she was from the society as well, so she got on the film, and she knew everyone in the village. And it just kept snowballing and snowballing until we had the support of the local mayor, and that was just beautiful. And you know, and they're, they're in the film, and I think they're amazing. I think the bad guy, this, this sledgehammer-wielding villain that we're bringing to this film, I think genre fans are going to love him. And that was... We didn't know we were going to get that. I was just looking for actors anywhere. But it turned out that they all knew each other, and that this whole village, you know, they were behind the film. Like three, 350 people in this village knew... Everyone knew the film was being shot, so everyone helped us in some way. It was, it was fantastic. You couldn't have planned it better. It just happened. It sounds like the sweet version of um, State in Maine. I don't know if you've seen the David Mamet film, <laughs> where, they, where, uh, they, no. where, they, where a whole film crew as they send on a small American town and completely disabuse it of any of its humility and respect by obviously being very, <laughs> being very Hollywood about their demands. I see. Yeah, the opposite. That's a wonderful. That's a wonderful story, and I think a lesson a lesson for filmmakers as well. I think it's. It's it's those opportunities may arise. So it's it's I guess you being open to it as opposed to it would have been I guess it would have been more instinctive to want to keep control of your film and not cede it to I guess strangers in the first instance. Yeah. But, but see that 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 was you know the opportunity led to different led to the, the sort of yeah. ultimately led to them somebody saying oh you can lend a horse if you want. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, they, they they became the soul of the film. I have to say, I think every when you go out to make a film, you write a script, you try to make a good script, and all this stuff, and you try to capture the best film. But you only capture a good film when you start realizing there's there's actual you're actually capturing some sort of life, right? I think mm. every film needs to find that, and they were they kind of brought that to the table, and that was amazing. I think I kind of learned that from Robert Rodriguez on. Um, El Mariachi. I read the book. I really love how how pragmatic a filmmaker he was to make that movie. Like he, you know, he just shot as pragmatically as he could, and he used the entire, the you know, the entire village is in the film. Everyone's in the film, and then everyone's into what he's doing, and that really helped him get it completed. And he wasn't arrogant about okay, this guy's not, you know, this guy's not an actor on this and this website or doesn't have an agent, I'm not going to use him. Instead, he just looked for local talent and he found it. So I, I tried to do the same thing. Yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah, I suppose, I suppose it would have been, if you'd have just helicoptered in and helicoptered out, it would have been a very sort of clinical experience, wouldn't it? Whereas I guess I guess everybody leaves sort of happy yeah. memories of making the film there as much as anything else, don't they? Well, I, th I think they would have shut us down. Okay. Because we had no permission to do it. And apart from shooting in the house... Uh, we didn't have a right to do any of the things we did, and plus, you know, we did we did a lot of stunts. We have people like dangling off rooftops and stuff. We didn't do that the way it's supposed to be done. We just did it the most stupid way possible, which is we did it for real. Um, and 
I don't think it would have been abnormal for the council to come and be like, you can't have an Englishman dangling from your rooftop at four o'clock in the morning, screaming off the top of his lungs, you know? So. Yeah. No, that sounds yeah. amazing. Now, now, one thing, one thing I, I wanted to say, because I, I was going to say it earlier, but the way you were describing the film in the early part of this conversation and given, you know, you're given, you got a brick going there and not knowing what they're doing. Accidentally or on purpose, it feels like a, it feels like it could, your film could be read as a as um, as a metaphor for Brexit. <laughs> are you conscious? Yes. Are you conscious of that? Having achieved that, I mean, I'm guessing you didn't plan that, but but in in many senses, it sounds like it. <laughs> a little bit. Well, see, I mean, the film on, on the surface is a survivalist thriller, but I also wanted to make sure, especially through the, this character of Kara, who's a complete mystery. I wanted to make sure that she actually pushes the envelope further. So everyone is fighting for survival, and she's the one willing to die for something beyond survival. She's act, we think she's a pessimistic character, but she's actually fighting for the hope that there is a moment after this disastrous scenario. So her her motivations are hopeful, and no one can really understand them. And I think... And in that, we kind of get to the matter of money. Money is involved in the film. I don't want to tell you how, but okay. this, it discusses how, you know, this is a strange world because you could have a thousand pounds and you couldn't buy an apple for it. Right? We've, we've descended into this world where a second ago it was all about money and now it, it's just useless, worthless paper. And that is at the center of the twist of our film. I, I won't. I won't speak too much about it. There's there's a bit of a, a heist in there somewhere. Okay. Um, so yeah, so there there is a lot of discussion about why you know the value of money and uh, someone even burns a five pound note in it. So I think I, I think some people might see some Brexit uh, comparisons, but they'd have to watch the whole film. I can't spoil it for them. No, no. I mean, I, I just I'd like to say it's, it's any kind of any kind of notion of a Brit abroad who <laughs> who is useless. Is easily a metaphor for Brexit to me. I mean, I know it. It's strange. I mean, everything has you know, with Trump around, every film has now become a reflection of Trump's America, which you know is is funny. I think cinema's always looked at the worst and best in society, and when you've got situations where these things are tested through Brexit or through Trump, then people start drawing analysis. And I think, I don't know, I didn't make it because of Brexit. Because back when we made it, we we're like, there's no fucking way Brexit's gonna happen. Oh no no! I wasn't suggesting one minute yeah. your intention. It's just that like 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 you know when, when you start adding up the sums and looking at the way the world is, it's hard not to hold a mirror up and and see it. It's like I remember watching um, the the third of the Purge movies. Yeah, it couldn't. I mean, when it was being made, it was thinking how funny it would be if Trump even ran for the primaries. Never mind ran for president. Yeah. So so they they give you this cartoon evil, and in fact. The film couldn't satirise what was going on in reality. It just couldn't. Yeah. It, by the time the film came out, the world had already gone crazier than the notion of the purge, which is which it's is, insane. Which is kind of mad, kind of mad. Yeah. And uh, you know, you've got you've got in Britain right now, we've got newspapers that are complaining that things we've put in place because we don't want free movement of people are holding us up when we go on holiday. You're like, you can't, you can't have your cake and eat it. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's, it's uh, a no. trick. 
Yeah, it, it's very interesting. But I think I think I think Brexiters are going to like the movie because Europe is in tor- turmoil and the Brit is still running around with his pounds. So. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe there's a pro-Brexit angle. I don't know. Okay. Well, obviously I've not seen the film, so it's uh, it's hard for me to say. Um, well, look, your film's got, what? What is it? Is it is it is it, a, is it a special premiere at all at Frightfest? Yeah. So it's the world premiere. Wow. Big it's never been show, shown before. Um, we're gonna have it in glorious 2K 5.1 surround sound at the Prince Charles Cinema, the cinema I love as well. So I'm really happy that. That's what we're showing, and yeah, I mean, all the French actors and cast and crew and friends are flying over as well, so it's going to be a multicultural event, <laughs> um, and everyone has become friends since, so it was nice bringing a Brit and, a, and an actress from London over and everyone getting to know each other. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's going to be, it's great, and we're just trying to get as much, you know, word out so that we have a full cinema. Yeah. Excellent. Well, look, fingers crossed. And congratulations on the movie. It sounds fantastic. Sounds right on my street. Thank um, you very much. And thank you very much for giving us your time on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to The Brinflix Frightfest Preview Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com.